When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shake up your back-to-school routine at Whole Foods Market. With fresh produce, snacks, supplements, and local favorites to jazz up any lunchbox or pantry. And with a big selection of ready-to-heat meals like vegetable lo mein and chicken tikka masala, it's easy to keep the family fueled up for the week. Always made with the high standards you trust from Whole Foods Market. Like banning 230-plus ingredients from all food. All the more reason to make the flavors of Whole Foods Market part of your routine. Yeah, hello and welcome to episode 55. This is episode 55 of Potteroonie. I know there's confusion about this because it says 55 on the last episode, but that was episode 54. This is episode 55. And thanks for tuning in. So whatever you do, tuning in sounds very old. Are you subscribing, downloading, listening, whatever. So whatever you're at, I mean, I appreciate... You've you've got a busy, there's lots of things that you could be doing. I mean, you probably are doing something. I mean, it doesn't mean you're not doing something. But but uh, I, I appreciate the, t- the time you've taken to have a look. This is a good one. This is Barry Crimmins, a uh, wonderful American comedian that uh, my friend Bruce Igar in New York put me in contact with. And we chatted over the Skype and it's a, it's, it's a great chat. And it, if you want to. Uh, we will we'll talk about you you will know about everything about it if you listen to the podcast and if you do know if you know maybe you do know anyway and that's why you're listening so if you're first time listening as well I, there are loads of other good ones um i talked to a few irish comedians like Ardla hanlon and neil delamar des bishop um and des bishop well he's based in new york but I, irish american comedian uh, uh frank kelly from father ted as well and uh, Patrick McDonald, Willie White, a brilliant one there, and uh, musicians as well like Monday and last the last one with Jimmy Smith is just an amazing story, amazing life story, similar to Willie White, just an amazing life story. Well, they're completely different life stories, but they they're very good. And then there's Culture Reardon who played bass with the Pogues, of course. Was he, she's that was great. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the oh Malachi McCourt who I met in New York and went to his apartment. Um, and uh, well, I mean, what a life he's had, and um, I can't—I can't think of any. Oh, and Shan Bradley, who uh, who 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 started the band, the Nickel Erectors, that uh, that Shane McGowan was Shane McGowan's first band. But I don't say it was his band because it was actually Shan Bradley's band, and that must be made clear. Uh, yeah, and there's just lots like that, and I somehow just can't remember them all. But there were some fantastic ones, uh, and. Um, Oh, well, Jason Byrne, that live one was brilliant as well. Um, so, yeah, you have a listen to them. And if you want to give me a, a five-star rating, then do. Do that. You go on for iTunes, give me a five-star rating. Give me a comment. Give me some feedback. That always helps. And also contact me on Twitter at Joe Rooney one uh, Whatever. I'm not, you know, and uh, website, JoeRooneyComedian.com. So this is sponsored by Jack Cody's craft beer and it's brewed in the town of Drada Drada if you're from Drada Drada if you're not from Drada Drada if you're from the north Drogada so uh, a lovely beer and and many different 
types of Jack Cody's. Well, my favourite is Duxie's. It's a lovely brown beer with a strong taste and it's great with barbecue, great with food. Yeah, Jack Cody's. Yeah, so uh, since I last talked to you, I've done the Vodafone Comedy Festival in Dublin and it was a I did uh, I did one gig there and it was just an amazing gig when um, Milton Jones was on John Caleri Kevin Goody all great hacks and I had a lovely such a beautiful gig that I just it was just so perfect I wish I recorded it was just perfect and it was so perfect and this quite often happens you, you do an amazing gig usually at a festival where you've got a comedy literate crowd and it's just oh nothing nothing can go wrong um but you know, in the next gig could be in a uh, bar with uh, not exactly uh, brilliant lighting or just not a very good show. And, you know, and you realise then you're on stage because you just think, I'm a comedy god. That last gig, hey, I've made it. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and then you walk on, you're five minutes in, I think, you realise, oh shit, no, no, I have to work here. I can't just uh, swan on. I'm not like, uh, you know, I've got to win these people over. Uh, and that has happened to me once or twice after festivals and it did it did happen to me after Vodafone it wasn't the immediate gig afterwards it was a couple of gigs later um, but since yeah actually I've done a couple of improv gigs since since uh, in the last two weeks and they're just great and so if you're in Dublin I have to highly recommend this is an improv gig that's been going for 24 years in the International Bar on a Monday night upstairs and it's the Dublin Comedy Improv and um, I'm not blowing my own trumpet well I am blowing my own trumpet in fact I'm blowing there's ten of us something like that uh, I'm blowing ten trumpets and uh, but they should be blown there's no trumpet that sh- uh, needs blowing more than these trumpets uh, so I, I just it's great because it's not stand up stand up is brilliant but improv it's unique to that night you'll never see that night again and sometimes sometimes there's just nuggets of brilliance in a show that uh, uh, and I really want to do improv on the podcast and, and I was setting that up a while ago and then I just couldn't get everyone together and someone in the studio and the studio free at the same time but uh, I re- I, I'm going to do it with my own equipment now so uh, that's going to happen. Well, I want to come back from Edinburgh because I'm going off to Edinburgh. I mean, the, uh, in a few days. I mean, I've got. I think um, I'm down in Galway, and then I'm up in Limavady on Saturday night, and coming back after that gig, and then I've got I've got a flight to Edinburgh at half six that morning. So I'm going to be a bit wrecked, but I'm going over there to do a show for two weeks. I'm going to be wrecked on the Sunday, and and I'm saying that because I've booked to to go to see two shows on the Sunday. So. Wrecked or not wrecked, I'm going to see uh, poetry, a spoken word, uh, two gigs of that. Uh, one of them is Caroline Duffy, Caroline Duffy, the poet, Scottish ex poet laureate. Great, uh, she's a great poet. And uh, 20 minutes later, so I'm going to have to dash off. I don't think it's that far away. I'm going to see two rap rappers, I suppose you called them, doing a spoken word show as Sage Francis and B. Dolan, who I've only just discovered by listening to Scroobius Pip's podcast, which I would highly recommend. Scroobius Pip. And this podcast is called The, the Distractions, something in distraction. But it's uh, Scroobius Pip, so I just have to listen to that. And uh, so, oh, there was a great interview I listened to last night that he did with Carol Barrett of the Libertines, and that, that was brilliant. Yeah, and so I discovered these guys, Sage Francis and B. Dolan, American white rappers. Um, and uh, B. Dolan has got 
he's been in Ireland loads of times, I believe. But I didn't know about him, and he's but he's Dolan. He's fucking Irish, probably. And uh, he's got one called "Film the Police," which is great. Look at that up on YouTube. Brilliant video as well. Um, and Sage Francis. Uh, and if you've ever listened to Scroobius Pip, get better. Scroobius Pip. What a song! What a video! It every time I listen to it, it grows. I get a lump in my throat, or you know, just it's moving. Hey, yeah. Well, anyway, that so I was doing all this. Yeah, I was up and down. I was up and down to Kerry as well twice last weekend. And Kerry, it's great to do gigs there, but I didn't do them consecutively. I, I did one and had to come back on the same night, and and two nights later I had to go down and come back again, and and it's like a. I was wrecked, so I had to stop on the way. I was just too wrecked. I had to have a nap. And it's just that weird, uh, the difference. You come off stage, you know, when you do a great gig and you come off stage, and, you know, and it's like, wah, encore or something like that, blah, blah. And you feel like, you know, it's great, great, great. And three hours later, you wake up in the car on the side of the road and it's uh, it's two o'clock in the morning and you still have another hour and a half to drive and it's cold. Uh, so that's that the kind of difference. But... I'm not complaining, I'm just saying. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that's it. Uh, Barry Crimmins is coming up now and he is, it's confirmed, doing a gig in Ireland in the Sugar Club on the 27th of December. I would highly recommend to go and see him. Or you will go and see him when you listen to this podcast. Uh, one, uh, one gig I'd like to book for myself is the 17th of September up in up in Bundoran uh, in the Great Northern Hotel. I'm doing a gig with Kevin McAleer, Colin Murphy and Sharon Mannion on the 17th of September. So give me, give me, give me all the feedback you can, please. This is a, this is a, a thing I love doing and I'd like to get your feedback. And this is one of my favourite you're going to love this uh, it's, it's it's the brilliant wonderful Barry Crimmins Listen, thanks for doing the interview, and I know it's early in the morning, so thanks, okay. thanks for getting up. Uh, it's the old Lenny Bruce bit. No, 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 I always get up 12 hours before the gig. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what what uh, were you at last night? Were you out? What's that? Were you out last night, or you were watching? The, I was uh, watching. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I think he should have done another hour and a half. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was going well. It was going I well. couldn't believe he got off when he did. Mm, it was good. It was, and let's come here. So I'm gonna. I mean, I guess you I, you'd probably lose me if you start talking politics, particularly American politics. But that is uh, that okay. is that well, is that is your. That's uh, encouraging for my overall situation. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We can talk about anything. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm just saying you're, you're a political satirist. For people who don't know you, but that's basically your thing. That's what that's where you've. Well, that's the uh, you know furrow you have played. Well, I'm telling you, I'm at the point with uh, there used to be a thing where painters uh, painted buildings, and a guy because back in those days only guys were allowed to paint buildings, but guys mm. would paint buildings, and there was lead in the paint. Yeah, and and uh, they painted buildings for 25, 30 years. 
open a can of paint one day and just start throwing up. Mm. Uh, and that's how you feel about comedy? <laughs> well, that's how I feel. Well, that's how I feel about elections. All right, yeah, 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 yeah. I, they, they would get this thing called the painter's colic, and they, you know, they, they let the paint would eventually poison them. That's how I feel about American elections. I just open up, you know, it's like, oh no, the Iowa caucus, you know. So that's, <laughs> It's getting. Uh, it's actually probably getting to the point now that it's impossible to. By the way, stop. are we on? Cam- are we on camera, or is this just? No, we're not on camera. We're just. Oh, good. Going, we're just going with audio. So. Good. Okay. Good. I'm doing all kinds of horrible things now. <laughs> good. And uh, so what I was. Yeah, it's kind of got to the point. Not only in America, but also over here in the U- and in the UK, where satire is almost pointless because what's happening in politics is so bizarre and so. Weird, it's beyond satire, if you know what I mean. If you made it up, you wouldn't believe well, it. Well, yeah, I, I, when uh, there's a satirist over here who was popular a long time ago named Tom Lehrer, and when they gave uh, Henry Kissinger the Nobel Prize, he said, in a world where Henry Kissinger wins the Nobel Peace Prize, satire is no longer possible. Yeah. I know it's like over here where Boris Johnson became the... Uh, Minister for Foreign Right Affairs. along those lines, you know, or like, you know Donald Trump, or mm. you know Clinton, whatever. I mean, the mm. thing is, over here, people get. We are so dogmatic in this country that you say one thing about one candidate, and they immediately start trying to either defend this other candidate. And it's like, well, when did I say that? By the way, what what are the language requirements? <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, there's a clip actually I watched of you last night, and it's in the uh, Call Me Lucky uh, documentary yeah. where you're talking about you're uh, talking about Reagan or whatever. But someone in the audience go, oh, "Are you? A, did you vote oh, yeah, for Carter?" Yeah, yeah. And you're like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. You know, it's like if you're anti-Reagan, you have to have voted for Carter. It's like that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But we, I guess we don't have long here. So let, let, for people who don't know you, let's get. Let, well, you, you were born in um, Skinny Skinny Atlas, it's called, is it? In, yes. Uh, upstate. I didn't know we weren't going to. I have on a Skinny Atlas shirt right now. Do you? So I can spell it for you. S K A N E A T E L E S. And when you can spell it, you're promoted to the second grade. <laughs> and that is a pretty repu- like conservative town, is it? Growing up there. Uh, like, honey. I'm sorry. Did you hear me there? I was uh, no, I was dealing with my waitress, uh, Bruce. <laughs> sorry. Well, it's a good job we don't have pictures of that. Um, so uh, that's a pretty conservative town. Yeah, it, mm. it is. It's gotten less conservative and more sort of, you know. Well, or. I, I guess uh, maybe the Democratic Party's moved to the right to meet some right. people there, um, right. but uh, it's uh, it's it's okay, you know. I mean, it's gotten a bit better, but it was still. But then again, you know, we call people. There used to be real conservatives in this country, and you could have you could find some stuff in common with them because they were good about civil liberties. They didn't want to intervene everywhere militarily. Mm. They, uh, you know, and they were actually okay on the environment. 
and the, yeah, I can't find a, a cons, someone that's called a conservative now here. I mean, I don't think their policies are very conservative, considering the size of the war machine and and the breaks and the welfare for corporations and so on and so forth. It's not like these guys are these frugal, and they certainly don't care about civil liberties. I mean, in this country, they are always saying, if you see something, say something, unless it's about the growing police state. Hmm. This seems to be like a problem with democracy now. It's there is no choice, really. I mean, right. We always thought that maybe better. As matter. I've said for a while now, do you want to be hitting the nose with an anvil or a mallet? But uh, yeah, I, I like here we have Republicans and Democrats. If I put a nickel on the table, the Democrat would steal it from me, and the Republican would kill me for it, and that's my choice. Mm. You know. And then people get real condescending with me because I'm not behind the thieves. Uh, I just, I, you know, there's a lot more political things to do. I, I, think, I think one of the things that happens is people think they've become political and they're doing their civic duty. And all they've done is get to put themselves in servitude to these people who don't give a crap about them. You know, I, I would much rather work on issues like child abuse and direct environmental stuff and and just uh, civil liberties in general. Rather than get involved given, in actual politics or party political politics. Yeah, right, because, you know, the, I mean, like, the, the, in this country, the Democrats say to the, basically say to the progressives, well, we'll do anything you need, you know, because we, we care about the, uh, the progressive cause so much. And just as soon as there isn't an election within the next two years, we'll do something about it. And, of course, there's always an election 18 months from now, so you're doomed. Yeah, and it's yeah maybe that's the best thing, but maybe perhaps there's an apathy in people and that they that they're not thinking about voting. It's, well, I mean, I, about getting a nice car and a nice house. It's, that's yeah, the way well, I think there's. I mean, you know, that's the good thing about these kids who work for Sanders. They try to one of the ways they try to dismiss idealistic young people is by calling them naive. Mm. But the thing is, if you look at what these kids are were standing up about they're standing up about being put in you know into insupportable debt uh to get educations mm. for jobs that aren't there and and you know they're facing a growing and worse situation where they you know they just see the income inequality uh get worse and worse not only here but everywhere and then uh they're also by the way facing a situation where there may not be a habitat for them to live out their natural lifespan. Mm. So calling them naive because they support the candidate who speaks to those issues is ridiculous. They're some of the most sophisticated young people I've run into in generations. Mm. This, I actually agree. That is where you become a slave is when you get your mortgage and then you realize you've got right debt and then you realize you can't do what you want to do and you, you know, end up doing say, stuff that you don't believe in because you need money that's you know the perfect example of that is american show business you go out to la they get you on some sitcom or something and then the sitcom then they go well you know people are gonna they're not gonna they're not gonna take you seriously unless you buy a house out here right and 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 then the sitcom gets canceled and the next thing and that's how game shows happen yeah, that's how you end up on a game show. It's pretty much the same way as the mafia pull people in. They you, you end up with a gambling debt, and then they have yeah, it. that's right. So yeah, or, you know, <laughs> first taste is first exactly. First taste is free. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So, but you you have worked with. Uh, you were saying children's or abusive children. Let's go back. You were an altar boy, right? In um, in the local yeah. church. Yeah. You know, like a pretty. It's how know. I broke into show business. <laughs> yeah, I was an altar boy as well, <laughs> and uh, I hated it. Actually, I, hated oh. it. I used to hate it. And, it's uh, awful. Ruined my knees too. It's ruined your knees, yeah. Uh, but I, I think I got my first stage fright. Uh, oh yeah, I know I did. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I know you were, were I mean, Seriously, I was a good little boy. <laughs> and then I went up there and, you know, dealt with his mom. Other people were smart enough not to send their kids up to deal with this guy for whatever. Well, I know whatever reason I had already been raped, you know. Jesus. I know. So I, if you put, could tell, I don't know if you want to relate that story or whatever. Yeah. But, well, okay. As a four year old, I think late when my late when I was four and then when I was or just turned five, the babysitter's like stepfather was coming over to my house when my parents were gone and raping me. And so uh, by the time I'm 10 and dealing with this pedophile priest, when he put it, started giving me the old shoulder rub, I just hit him with an elbow and took off. Hmm. And I, and it was nothing I articulated in my head. I was waiting to get in trouble for doing it, but nothing happened. Because, of course, he didn't say anything. So so he had me kind of, you know, I mean, you know, they profile kids. They groom kids. And and he realized that wasn't a good bet. And so, and, and you know, you can, I would serve mass, the daily mass every day solo because everybody else would come up with reasons to cancel serving mass and their parents probably at least sort of knew somehow don't send them up to serve with this guy who was just a creep and uh, and evil and nasty he as it says in the movie and it shows in the movie he he was a dead ringer for Christopher Lee who was in all the Dracula movies at the time mm. so um you know, I think part of what was going on, what what happened, my instinct was, and my response, my reflex was, you got to kill me this time. And so, uh, you know, I think this guy probably thought it over and fortunately decided not to kill me. But, mm. you know, I'm sure it was a, an option he considered because he was an evil, evil person. And I've lost friend. I know, you know, kids I grew up with, uh, Someone they were very late adolescents. One one who's late adolescence and and now three more as adults have committed suicide. You know, so that's four that I know of in one stop for this guy. This was um, Father Neary, isn't it? Father Neary, yeah. And and uh, you know, when I think of him, two words come to mind: extra crispy, because he's uh, he's de he's deceased. He's gone to hell. You hope there's a hell. <laughs> well, yeah, that's when I start rooting for hell. Yeah. yeah. Little hell pennants. You know, booster shirts. And you, so. Did, sorry, go ahead. So anyway. <clears throat> yeah, I uh, I think that church is broken. I, I, You know, as an Irish American, what it's done to my native, my, you know, my ancestral homeland I mean, every level of your society has been permeated and controlled by that church, whether you got to go to school, you got to go to a hospital, you got to go to prison, you got to go to whatever. They're looming right there. 
And that report that came out that showed for how many decades and how much abuse there had been and 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 also just kind of imposing kind of homogenizing their abuse into their dogma and taking it out on people. I mean, it's horrid. And uh, that's that's part, you know, between my dead friends and all the people I've known and watching them continue. This new pope, I feel it's his job to change the subject and not the church. Uh, his PR guy, the guy who just took over the whole Vatican press, uh, uh, geez, uh, he just took over the press, uh, uh, you know, the, all the press for the Vatican. But he was the guy who originally sold us his pope, this guy named Greg Burke, who was the Fox News correspondent to the Vatican. And this is who's, who sold us the progressive Catholic Church. He's also the guy, uh, he's also an Opus Dei. Although I do like their band, Opus Day and the Knights, a little bit softer now. So, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, but I mean, the stuff that's gone on. This Dolan, who's the cardinal in New York, he was a, he was a, the bishop of of uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is like about halfway across the country from here. Mm. And uh, there. There was, they made a movie about it, uh, uh, or a documentary about it, a very good documentary about it. Uh, but he, uh, he helped further the cover up. Oh, no, what, no, what he did was he, they lost this big case to a bunch of victims. They lost a big case to a bunch of victims. Um, in Milwaukee, who were deaf as children, as boys, and who had been profoundly abused, uh, you know, raped and yeah. just missed forever. And they won this big case. Well, the church declares this phony bankruptcy. And, and Dolan, in letters that we have seen back and forth to the Vatican, explains, oh, he's just going to take so they can declare bankruptcy. He took all this money and literally hid it in a burial fund. And, and so that they wouldn't pay these people off who had won, you know, legal settlements. Well, how about rendering under C unto Caesar, son mm. of a bitch? How about that? Mm. How about rendering unto the legal authorities? You know, all this tuck, this grandstand plays. This guy's a, this guy's a socialist. Really, you're a socialist? Well, I know where there's some wealth you can redistribute. You're going to have to give me the keys to the vault. But I'll be happy for no fee to spread that money among the poor people. And let's get out those art treasuries you've been hiding. For I know. I mean, it's just it's so obviously, you know, ridiculous that they should preach about giving to the poor when there's so yeah. much wealth there that has never been. And and a lot of the, this happened in Ireland, obviously, as well. And a lot of and young kids even who told their parents they were being abused. Yeah. Their parents wouldn't they would say, oh, you can't say that about father such and such. It oh, just, I know. You know uh, so, I mean, even they couldn't get help from their parents, but that was how powerful the church were. And, and still to this day, I told you that actually that I think on Twitter that uh, they have control over the schools still in Ireland. And, and yeah. a lot you of kids have to be unless you have a unless you've been baptized. Yeah. Again, by, you know, Dracula. I, I, I and they, that's such a I mean, I, it's just it's terrible. But I mean, I know how strong the church is. I know how strong it was. My, my, uh, 
my grandfather was a wonderful man, but he was opus day and stuff. I mean, it was horrible. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's such a, f- a fearful thing. If you're brought up believing there is a hell and that you and that these people have that power, and it's and, very and hard to, if you're brainwashed that much. And I'm, that's, I, it's hard to go against it. Even I feel it still, and I, I you know. well, I, I mean, I'll tell you what. That's the reason I ask for excommunication every day because it's like I know what these people have done. I know what they're doing, or a lot of it, mm. and. And how dare you threaten my soul? If there is such a thing, how dare you threaten my soul? I know one thing. If there's some, if there's, if there's some sort of supreme creature or control mechanism up there and it has anything to do with decency, these people aren't controlling access to it. Yeah, and as they say in the film, I'll know I'm in hell if it's full of priests and bishops and popes. Mm. And so you, you actually ask for... To be excommunicated on Twitter, uh, you tweet the post. I tweet every- it every day. It's, a, I mean, you know, it's a. People are sincere and they try and go, why don't you try this or why don't you do that? But really, the point is, is to make the point publicly every day that I have unblinkingly have no fear of anything that church would threaten me with. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And I feel I'm of good conscience. I feel I act on good conscience and, and behave in a, in a, in a fashion that, you know, if, again, well, if there's a hell and I go, it's, you know, there's going to be some good, you know, I won't be in the, I won't hang out in the priest section, but there'll be a lot of great people there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but I mean, that's just this construct meant to, to scare everybody. And then, and then part of their dogma, of course, ties in with, sexuality and that's really sick you know like particularly to kids to it's sort of like figuring out your sexuality is everybody has to pass through this sort of narrow chasm and they wait right there to ambush you it's really scummy if you think about it it's horrible but i mean i i probably think that uh pedophiles are attracted to any organization that has power and certainly has power over children and 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 the more oppressive the more sexually repressive uh, a society is the better the deal for for pedophiles because you know I mean it, because you just create more self-loathing and weird be- and, and and a desire to look the other way and fear of you know what should be you know one of the kind of fun things that even poor people get to do on this planet. Uh, it's, it's fucking awful because you could just. Um... Ah, uh, whatever you know. You've uh, you, you've been. Yeah, let's put let's install let's in, let's put on a, a crotch tax. It, yeah, I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'd be a good one. And uh, uh, so, um, just to move on from that subject matter. Yeah. So, um, but the, this club that this is a famous there's a famous comedy club that you started up in Boston uh, yeah. called the Din Ho, Ding Ho was it Ding Ho it was in a Ding. Chinese restaurant is that correct Yeah a yeah. Chinese restaurant that did uh, line dancing as well was that correct <laughs> Well someone said that it was actually I don't think there was line dancing yet but Oh right right, right it was right. a good line okay. but they they had a varied uh, entertainment of music and the musicians were just it used to be a viable place before the Chinese got it as a as a as a music club yeah. but then you know they weren't doing well at all with music but the and but the musicians held the who used to play there all the time really kind of you know they asked for the same money they always got I don't I didn't blame them mm-hmm. so when I went in there I honored all the commitments 
they had to the uh, for the first month or month and a half we on the weekends our shows would be comedy and music and then we went strictly to comedy nowadays i would like to go back to shows where they're more cabaret kind of thing i i enjoy working with uh musicians and you know other people can actually do something <laughs> you know, I, you know I, that's interesting a lot of uh stand-up now is pure stand-up as well I mean when this scene started uh, what was called alternative comedy in mm-hmm. L- in London and here in Dublin I think there was a lot of acts that weren't strictly stand-up as well just really weird acts like, yeah 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 yeah. there was one guy I think he used to melt a block of ice in a different way every, right every every spot he got uh, okay <laughs> but I mean anyway but I kind of miss that kind of thing now because it's kind of just Stand up, stand up, stand up now, and it's well, you know, yeah, and well, I think it's well, it's as if you're a, you know, you're a minority group in show business, and and it, and at a time, every minority group needs to kind of go back and caucus among themselves and work and and kind of get themselves established and figure out what their deal is and a little bit of you know ground rules for what they do. You know, if comedy would be simple. Don't steal and be original would pretty much cover it. But uh, um, uh, other than that, you know, um, that's it. So, I mean, we figure that stuff out fine. But then, you know, I know I've worked with, I've toured with a lot of musicians. And, you know, I've. Uh, oh, you've toured with Billy Bragg, Jackson Brown, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Uh, uh, yeah, Michelle Shocked and this woman Dar Williams, and, and I've also worked. I was Warren Zevon a bit, so uh, so they brought me. You know, so I would do these dates with them and play big places, and I could go back and play a smaller theater with them, and that's what got me out of the comedy clubs, which was good because what happened with comedy clubs in the United States was this boom happened. Suddenly, there's 500 comedy clubs in the United States. Well, there weren't 500 people capable of headlining in those days. There were 500 people. There were 380 people shameless enough to be hacks and basically pass the same act around. And what happened was that developed the audience in a lot of the clubs. They came out to expect that. And, you know, you can get in as much trouble for exceeding an audience's expectations as not, not, not reaching them. You know, so... Uh, uh, we ended up with a lot of places where basically the demographic for comedy was very similar to the demographic for professional wrestling. And, you know, hey, people like professional wrestling, that's fine, but that's probably not the not, demographic yeah. I'm aiming for with my humor. Yeah, I know what you mean, actually. Yeah, so you're getting a better quality audience. <laughs> that's not too Early on, it was but, hip and underground. Yeah. It was hip and underground for a while, and then yeah. it was... Too, there was too much of it. There wasn't enough talent. But and then, you know, and then a lot of acts are kind of dumbing down their acts, I guess. To yeah, dumbing down their act and also just doing stuff. I mean, it's almost as if, hey, when's he going to do the airline peanuts part? Know. You know, I mean, it was just whatever, and you know, just crotch it up to death too. So I, I I'm, you know, I didn't take it personally. I just went and I. It's odd, but because of the kind of career I've had, I've never really gotten to the point where I could afford to not hustle at any point. I didn't just watch the stuff flow in. I had to figure out. And mm. so, and I built a lot of my audience, not 
with the eye to building an audience, but, you know, on picket lines, at peace rallies, uh, you know, environmental rallies, anti-nuke stuff, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, I developed a lot of my audience through, you know, stand, taking stands on various causes and also because these wonderful musicians shared their audience with me but but on a on a lower level where you know the musicians and and the comedians or the actors you name it poets uh uh when you work together uh you create a much stronger weave because suddenly some people who you know had a good reason to not think comedy is so hip suddenly see a comic that's hip uh people who people yeah. who didn't go see certain types of music suddenly realized like, wow, that's really good. And so, you know, you know, the musicians get some fans because of the comics, the comics get some fans because of the musicians and, and we're also sort sort of all in it. We're laborers in the field of entertainment. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing because right off. Yeah. I remember at some point thinking a lot of my friends actually wouldn't go to a comedy club and that's kind of, yeah. That's a bit shit well, when you're when you're a stand-up comedian, knowing that your friends wouldn't come and see the. I, I but but it's because of that, it's because of that hacks. It's because of that hack stuff, you know. Mm. Those same people. I've had people uh, all the time. If you all, gee, I haven't been to a comedy club and I don't know how long. Or I haven't seen a comedian in so long. I forgot how much fun it can be. But the thing is, if they went to their local, you know, yuckheads, they're going to see crap that's going to offend them. When I would start. I would go out on the road in the 80s, in the early 80s, and the first time I come to town, you know, the local college professors would show up and some progressive people. So they would have a great time, and they all say, we're coming back. Mm. And the next time I would come back, it would be maybe half those people would be back out to see me. The next time I came out, almost none of them. And what had happened is they did come back, and they saw this schlock. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, why do women go to the bathroom in pairs? How come foreigners drive cabs and work at convenience stores? You know, it's, yeah. this just bigoted, lowest common denominator crap. Mm. Uh, now there's so many – the problem now is there's just so many – we did too well in a way because if you do comedy well, it looks easy. So anyone thinks they could do it. Now. Everybody wants to be a comedian now. Yeah, and and it's I mean you know I I'm getting I'm gonna ride from I picked up in an airport a couple of months ago and this guy's driving me back in about half and I'm friendly how are you today you know what and then about halfway back he goes well I'm just I'm a little nervous to have you in my car Mr. Kremitz and I'm like nobody knows who I am what are you talking about yeah. and he goes. Like, oh, I'm a big fan. I really respect and revere what you've done for comedy. Go, well, that's really nice. Yeah, and I'll be opening for you tomorrow night. <laughs> and which is fine. The cab driver. I get to the hotel, and then I meet the producers of the show, and then they go, oh, also, uh, we're a husband and wife comedy team. We're on. It's like nobody I'm, you know, everybody is a comedian. Everybody. But now, like in New York, there are 35,000 People, New York's greater New York City, 35,000 people calling themselves comedians. It's like a refugee crisis, you know, like Syria is opening its borders up to comedians. It's just, they're just, want, I mean, the UN's flying in tents for <laughs> emergency stage time. It's been, and these kids, I see these kids in there, you know, you know, they ask me what I think. Well, first, this other thing goes on too, where, they tape all their shows and put them on YouTube and stuff, and then they'll send know, me this thing. I know, and, yeah. And they send it to you to see what you think of it. 
And they go, what did you think of that set? I was, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. It's like you're bombing in front of six people <laughs> oh, no. at a bad open mic night in a pizza shop. Good Lord. You know, what do I think? I think you should try to buy up every copy of that tape you can. And <laughs> Who shows it? You know, like, what are you crazy? You know, yeah, we gotta all do our work. We gotta have our, we gotta take our lumps to figure out how to do it. It isn't as easy as it, it, people think it is because mm. it's, you're not gonna do well if you're making it look hard. But uh, you know what? I used to run a comedy club in Dublin and years ago, and and uh, after a gig, after a night, the next day, the people who called me back, the people who wanted to book a gig immediately were the shittest acts and the good yeah. acts would never call me and it'd be, it'd be really hard to get them you know right but it's right uh, or you know or they knew they still had work to do or what they were on it yeah mm. like Stephen Wright was always shocked when, when I wanted to give him a, a little more money or whatever and he would go I didn't come on I you know, I didn't do as long as everybody else. No, but you did these incredibly, you know, concentrated jokes that were amazing and are, you know, something that people really took away from the show that they appreciated. You know, you you know, you you get paid for that. Yeah, and and is that where he started? He started in the Ding Ho. Well, uh, in Boston, and and I think he really, you know, he cut up a, a lot, a lion's share of his teeth. Thing I would say. Do you remember the first time you saw him? Do you remember? first time he came in yeah i thought he was great and yeah. i and you know he came in and did an open mic at the thing and i i had already he had done something elsewhere a couple times and mm. and and a couple of my friends who i really respected had mentioned him so i was making sure to pay attention to him and he was a revelation i mm. <laughs> i think that's one of the things that happens to him, people <clears throat> like steven who are so inventive is <clears throat> People see them at first, and they come as a revelation. People, they did the same thing to the author, and a lot of authors, but Kurt Vonnegut. And then people later are complaining, well, he's doing the same, you know, incredibly ingenious, amazing thing he was doing before, but I've seen it, so it's not quite so much as a surprise as it used to be. Therefore, I'm going to take points away from them. That's like it's still it's still brilliant and whatever and he's using his brain the way he figured he, to use his brain in a manner nobody else does that's mm. not enough for you I you know I could read Vonnegut all day or watch Steven all night anytime he's amazing um, when you were were you uh, emceeing the gigs and thing or were you were you you're performing as well as running it right oh yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah. And I, you, I mean the whole reason to play I mean really the selfish reason I did it. I needed stage time I've been around the country mm. and one thing that I had noticed was how terribly comedians were treated in so many places mm. and you know it's hard enough particularly when you're new to walk out there and and have you know enough self-esteem to think you're going to pull this off but when they beat you down they make you wait for hours and hours and hours and maybe you're still not even going to get on mm. and then you're told all these rules and and it's generally somebody who like has never even been on often it's someone's never even you know been on a stage mm. or is a terrible comedian mm. and they're imposing all these rules and so on and so forth well first off i want iconoclasts to do comedy not you know rules followers secondly mm. it, it just I felt that if you made somebody feel good about themselves and feel wanted and appreciated, then when they walked out on the stage, 
they're going to do a better job. And that happened the thing. And part of the, the main way you show people respect is you respect them economically. And I, yeah. I would take the entire door and split it up among the comics. And, <clears throat> and people talk about it in the movie a little bit like it was my straight, like I was in this war. They didn't realize, no, we just kept making more money. And when we did, I distributed it. That was, that was all. That was my trick. No big deal. Um, and it also seemed to have a more it was more than when when the audience had left and you closed the doors it, it seemed to have you know there was a thing where people comedians hung out oh my god we i mean the restaurant if you locked the back closed the inner door and locked it, it there were no windows mm. so <clears throat> so we would uh we would just move the party out there after closing time and then, you know, you'd see us stagger. And then eventually, you know, now and then the cops would be in there drinking with us so we couldn't get in any trouble. And so that was uh, that was an amazing party that went on for years. You know, <laughs> an amazing party. Uh, yeah, it sounds great. There was a club here called the Comedy Cellar. And when, when the comedy started in Dublin, there was probably only 10 comedians. And so right. you played every week. Right, and, and afterwards, everyone just started drinking, and it was great. And then it's kind of shit. Then when people start touring, and then you never see anyone anymore. You know. It's well, that's the, and then you get into that caste system. Like mm. Billy Hick, Bill Hicks is a really dear friend of mine. I almost never saw him because we were both headliners. You know, mm, mm. but we talked constantly. Hicks called me the night that Letterman bumped him off the air for doing pro-choice material, and. Yeah. Took a, it took a few hours. He was quite upset, but by the end, I had him convinced because it was true. I go, this is better. This is, you know, you get a lot more out of this. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. your sixth or seventh Letterman shot. And he, and he did, and he was, but then he got sick. And it's just a terrible loss. It was like rock and roll losing Hendrix at an early age. Like, he just, mm. I don't know what Billy would have done, but uh, I, I sure wanted to see, you know. Hmm. And isn't it kind of weird that it, it, it was, uh, is this true that B Bill Hicks kind of, when he went to London, he really found an, an audience. Is that true? Or did he, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that, is, that, that is true. He was, you know, I mean, he had a, you know, uh, he had a following in the United States, but that really put him into, into overdrive. And uh, uh, it was funny. It was funny, one of the people who stole his most material even even stole that part of the plan, <laughs> but we, you know, no need to go into that. Who, Dennis Leary? I, I could be. I don't know. <laughs> okay, okay. No, I don't. You know what? I don't. I, you know, I mean. Yeah, whatever. I, you know, I think Dennis Leary's a wonderful actor, and I and I like, you know, when he's in movies and stuff because uh, everybody gets a credit. The writers, everybody. Um, mm -hmm. But he's very very talented and uh and he's done a lot of for other comics so you know that you know there's fine I, you know you don't yeah whatever it's i yeah i don't i'm just not that i don't get that upset about comedy anymore i'm not really shocked by anything but uh i think leary's contributed a lot to comedy yeah 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 and let's let's go. I want to just because we, we're under time constraints. Let me can sure. you talk to me about when you went to Nicaragua as well. You went. You, oh well, how, we how did that happen? During the Contra, you know, during the U.S. war on that, mm. like basically, 
there's this thing in this country that if you're not a combat veteran, then you have no, you know, you have no right to use the rights that we always say that the the, vet, the, the military is fighting for. You know, it's mm. like that that crap where they're, you know, hey, you, you couldn't say, you know, you know, you, the only reason you can say this because they're over there fighting for your freedom in Afghanistan. And I say, if I leave my freedom lying around in Afghanistan, I, you know, I belong in shackles. You know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, that's the old, you know, if you don't love this country, you're going to get out of it because I don't want to be victimized by its foreign policy. But so basically, I was tired of people saying, well, you don't know what's going on down there. So, you know, uh, my friend Utah Phillips, who's a great folk singer, he did be, late in his life, he did some music with this woman, Annie DeFranco. But he's a great folk singer, sort of like a legitimate disciple of this folk singer Joe Hill who was literally executed for folk singing in Utah and then asked that his his uh, his ashes be spread around the rest of the country but not in Utah because he didn't want to be caught dead in Utah um, but uh, uh, oh, what the hell is this oh Utah what did Utah say? I forgot Anyway, uh, oh, he said, Utah said, I'm never uh, going to, he had fought in the Korean War, and he came back, and he was really a wreck, and then he was kind of pulled out of the soup by some progressive people, and worked the rest of his life for peace, and he's just a wonderful guy, but one of the things he used to always say is, I will never, if I make the drastic decision of choosing to have an enemy, I'm not going to let someone else decide who that is for me, yeah. you know? So, so I, when I went down to Central America, I went down to, you know, I pretty much knew what, I, you know, I confirmed a lot of stuff, but, you know, and people said to me, well, did you meet with, the Sandinistas were in power, mm -hmm. and people said to me, did you meet with the opposition? I said, oh yeah, we had two layovers in Miami. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, we spent time there and you found out it was just simple land reform and that these people who work so hard, you know, uh, picking the, you know, the, the beans that make the coffee we take for granted in the morning, if they just got a couple cents a pound more, it would be life. It's life and death to them. What, and we what, can I just tell me, what, what, what did Ronald Reagan have against this? I mean, what, what's... Is it just that it was called communism or it was called socialism? Yeah, uh, that was part of it. And, of course, it was another reason to try to fire up the war machine. And that was really where he mm -hmm. tried to start his war. The, on the left in the U.S., we sometimes forget our successes and don't fight, you know, and don't protect what we have because the forces of, you know, the backwards forces, the reactionary forces will always fight to get back any gain you've made. I mean... Mm -hmm. You know, so, uh, but when Reagan was president, he was trying every possible way to overtly create, you know, create a situation where he could overtly attack uh, anyone who had a progressive idea in Central in South America. Mm. Um, but we did well enough that we we at least had to make him, we made him, he had to break the law to do it. Mm. And that's really where it, it, any fair historian would, would, would say any chance of this guy being legitimately considered a great leader is, is done.
because he, you know, I will not negotiate with terrorists. Either they take the weapons or they don't. These prices are firm, you know. So, yeah. Tear down that wall. I want to visit the rest of the SS graves. Tear it down. Yeah. So. And you said the Contras were described as freedom fighters. Isn't that correct? Yeah, like yeah it's funny. George Carlin and I wrote a very similar joke uh, about it. Uh, thank goodness I was doing it first because I'm sure George wasn't watching me to take my lead. It just made me feel good. We were thinking the same. He said, you know, like, he said, you know, the, the freedom fighters. And I go, you know, the Contras are freedom fighters. Some of them have been fighting freedom for like 40 years now. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, no, I was just very moved when I when you talked about that when you when you were asked to speak uh, in the oh, hospital. Oh, the field hospital. That's yeah. you know that stays with me my my whole life. But they bring us way up in Matagalpa, and there's been horrible fighting there. It's been one of the most violent places in the whole nightmare. And I remember I was with this sort of we we had some other Americans with us, and there's one this kind of like boring blowhard guy who's like just knew everything and and when we got to Matagalpa, someone points at the buildings this Adobe buildings they have all these marks all over them and they go and and this woman said, "Gee, look at those buildings and and they go. And this guy starts going, yes, well, the Adobe, and I go, they're bullet holes. <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, he wasn't brought along with us. The, the Sandinistas didn't bring many. I, I don't think they brought almost any American. We might have been some of the only Americans, maybe the only Americans they ever brought to one of these field hospitals. We, we went out and we visited. There, there was, you know, three or four big tents and we went through all of them and the last one was this tent and it just had dozens of children i mean no one if anybody was 15 years old they were old and every one of those kids had lost an arm or a leg every one of them or more you know and and for some reason i got asked to speak and, you know, as my friend Randy Credico says about me, my Spanish is so bad they think I'm with the U.S. Embassy. But um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, uh, uh, so I, you know, I'm making these remarks through an interpreter, but I just got up and said that, you know, I'm so sorry for what my country's done to you. I want you to know that it does not represent what has been done to you, beautiful kids has got nothing to do with what an awful lot of people want for my country and I'm ashamed of my country and my country has tried to make you my enemy and you're not my enemy Ronald Reagan's my enemy and you know and I don't exactly remember anything I just know everybody's yeah. crying and then I go that's it I mean I was one a few times ago I literally was just sort of so emotional I just said that's it I got nothing else and and the they give me a round of applause, and when people would, you know, a lot of them had one arm, so they had to thump their hand on their chest uh, yeah. to, to indicate their approval of my remarks. And so, what I say about that is, I've heard the sound of one hand clapping, mm. and it's haunted me and stayed with me. And I think about those kids all the time now. I think of them living in this impoverished country that has been ravaged by everything from war to earthquakes to hurricanes 
to horrid and brutal economic exploitation. And I think about how tough their lives have been, the kids who ended up having to be in a wheelchair in a, in a country without much infrastructure and, and, you know, living out in some, you know, uh, small town somewhere and and how hard they've been and, and how much more difficult and, and, unha and, and, and less joyous their lives have been because of what was done for them, because we hired this third-rate actor to be president of the United mm. States, and, and they decided they needed a villain, you know, mm. uh, to protect us from. And that's who they were protecting us from, these children and, and their families who just wanted to make enough money picking, you know, p doing the very hard job uh, in, in hot, yeah. Weather on incredibly steep hillsides full of snakes the same colors as the plants that are deadly, you know, and they're out there every day. And they just want to be able to go home and, and, you know, eat and have a little fun with their family at the end of the night. And they just squeezed every penny out of them yeah. and to the point where, you know, you not only do they have to do this hard work, but we starve you to death while you do it. And so I never, you know, so that Utah really came through for me because, you know, I really understand what he says. Never again would I let anyone assign me my enemy. Yeah, it's, such, it's so fucking, it's, I don't know, it's unbelievable they, that this can be done in the name of. I what should, I mean, you know, or something. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, with all we have in this country and just the, just how we waste it. You know, I mean, I often say the Pentagon is so greedy, they have an extra side on their building, you know. It's yeah. just, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just so done with all the nationalism and the, flag waving everyone's always upset if someone burns a flag hey a flag isn't worth a shit if you can't burn it yeah. it just isn't you know uh what what the it, it stands for something if you can burn the thing mm -hmm. but you know otherwise i mean we're going to you know get into violence and hate people and hurt people in the name of what this symbol what it's well then what it symbolizes is a bunch of people who have very screwed up priorities mm. There's, there's a great line in the, uh, I don't know who says it in the documentary. The documentary's called Call Me Lucky, and it's on Netflix here. And it's, it's Directed really by Bobcat Goldthwait. Right, yeah, I, and it's a brilliant. I met, very early on, I was helpful to him, and, and then he ends up making this movie about me decades later. So I say it should have been called, Thank God I Was Nice to That Kid. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if it's him that says it, but somebody says it about you. He said it's you're the only person he knows that the more angry they get, the more articulate they become, which is... You know, maybe that's a little of the Irish in me, you think? It could be, it could be. Because uh, when I get mad, I come up... Well, I got one friend who says, oh, you don't want to get the list from Crimmins. Because yeah. when he gets mad, he goes like, he'll sit and listen for a while, and I go like, okay, A, but under that, B, and I do, I, do, I, I mean, I... For whatever reasons, uh, uh, when I'm uh, aggravated, I do get a bit more articulate. Yeah. And I think that really stood to you. And there's another part of the of the documentary as well, where where you uh, take AOL to. Um, All right. To court. Is it? And that, well, you know, it, it, we're testifying from the United States Senate oh, Judiciary it, yeah. Committee yeah, yeah. about the proliferation of child pornography trading on America Online. Yeah. Sorry, this is a little American.
fucking activity going on. That in was the back. loud, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I but, know. Just it's a, it's our goal to bring uh, motorized, loud motorized devices to the most serene circumstances. <laughs> um, but uh, um, basically, yeah. this is so. Basically, when when, when um, internet was in dial-up mode, basically. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Right, right. You, you uh, right. So so it cost. So anyway, all these child pornography traffickers were forming these chat rooms. Well, I mean, and it's not like they were corporations or something. It were these individuals. It was a real bad instance of the workers seizing the means of production because it was the beginning. It was the beginning of the digital age. Back then, they could take a Polaroid picture and scan it and put it on the on the net. Now you can video and whatever, and it's really scary. And I tried to blow the whistle on just child pornography in general because I said, if you find these people doing this, you're going to find an awful lot of people who are actively abusing children directly as well. Although to consume child pornography is to demand, you can't have it without a child being abused and exploited mm -hmm. and harmed. And in many cases, you know, they're not even going to live long, kids that get, you know, raped and mistreated and, 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 and traumatized in, in various ways. So um, back then, yeah, it was dial-up modems. So, you know, basically they had like wood-burning modems and it took a half hour to upload one photo. So these people, and it cost three or four dollars an hour to be online. So if you followed the money, you realized the reason AOL was dragging its feet and playing it dumb when I was complaining to them about what was going on, because at first I figured, well, they're human beings. They'll take care of this right away. And they just stalled and stalled because they were making over the years, over, over that period of time I was fighting them, I'm sure they made millions and millions of dollars uh, on these people who, back in those days, you couldn't be on the Internet in an unlimited fashion on AOL. So they were making millions of dollars out of basically people and chat rooms who were dealing in child pornography swapping. Exactly. And exactly. not only were these people... Some of the, these people were the parents of the children they were abusing. Isn't that correct? They were. Yeah, well, and that, that was the thing. Well, we have parental protection software, and I kept saying, that's great. Have you ever heard of incest? You know, I mean, you know, if the parents are the abusers, parental control software is not going to do you any good at all. I mean, fine, put it on there, and it might help. But <clears throat> it was. AOL just, were aware of this. You were making them aware of this, and they were doing nothing about it because they were making so nothing. much money. Right. Until I ended up testifying in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and then their arrogant uh, lawyer who gave me the once over and said, what is this guy, some nightclub comic or something? And to which I responded inside my head was, yeah, I'm a nightclub comic. I've dealt with a few hecklers. And about an hour later, you know, I just didn't give the guy a millimeter all day because he didn't deserve one. And all he did, and here's, the, here's one of the terrible things about the whole thing. One minute into his testimony, we both got to testify before we did the exchange, you know, the question and answer, and, you know, about it. And, 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 a minute into his testimony, I realized that this guy had had my testimony. Someone had, they asked me for my testimony a couple of days in advance, mm. and someone had leaked it to this guy. Really? Uh, now the the problem for him was there was nothing in the testimony that I hadn't written to AOL a million times, and all he could come back with were the same lame 
responses that AOL gave me at the time. So it was great for me because it was like, oh, okay, well, I know the answer to that because I had answered, they, you know, they had put, I basically, I'd gone through this, you know, seminar that went off or this, I took this course where for months I had to figure out how to refute their nonsense. And I did. And so, so for an hour, I just, you know, I just didn't take an inch because I was thinking about those kids that I had seen, the kids in those pictures. Yeah. Some people in the movie say, oh, we were so worried about Barry, what he was going through. Well, you know, you, you know, when you would have had to worry about me is if I saw what was going on and turned my back on it, because then I would have had to live with myself. Mm -hmm. I would much rather risk the disdain of the entire world than be guaranteed in my own self-loathing. So, you know, I did what I had to do and and, and I felt good about it. It wasn't. It was a terrible duty to be on, to see these photos of these kids, to see these horrible things being done to them. But, you know, to blow the whistle was an honor. And, and so... Uh, I think that's what's amazing about what you did is that you... It must have been horrible to have to watch that and the emotions that must have... Well, been you know, I mean, here's the thing. They make their own worst enemies. I knew how to operate in a state of shock. I'd been doing it since I was four years old. So they make their own worst enemies. You know, I, I knew how to be in shock and still get some stuff done. So, uh, you know, I handled it. And eventually, when I turned in all the material to the authorities and they went away and they said, now, don't, you can't do this anymore, then... I had done everything I could, and when they left, it all hit me, and I just sobbed. You know, I just broke down, you know, because then I could sort of acknowledge what I had been dealing with. Mm -hmm. But that was before I testified. I had raked myself into a pile. I was okay. Um, but it was the kids in the photos that I was concerned about, and that's who I was thinking about, like thinking about those kids in that tent in Nicaragua. I was thinking about, you know, mm -hmm. just depression and abuse, and I'm sure, surely a part of it was me standing up for myself as a child, but but um, mostly it was about the contemporary children. It really helped my healing more than anything to do something on behalf of contemporary children rather than uh, get in this situation where I kind of expect the entire world to come up to me and apologize for what happened to me in the late 50s, you know, so it was very uh, redemptive. And then, and, and the guy from AOL who was this, you know, $800 an hour lawyer back then, mm. you know, I mean, just top paid, whatever, who just thought he had me. And, and I, again, it's like, you know, he's just thought he's dealing with this nightclub comic. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've handled a few hecklers. And I did. And I just didn't give him any court because there was nothing. They had no, they didn't have a leg to stand on. So I, mm. I, uh, quite, by the end of it's quite amazing that uh, this guy who who obviously had top education comes from a sure. wealthy background is defending child pornography. That's what he's doing. That's what he's done with his life. Oh, well, not only that, he's it's almost sicker because he was, you know, you could almost say these people are sick. These people are, you know, whatever, you know. Mm. I mean, obviously they have to be dealt with, but they're sick. You're, you know, this is just cold blooded. You know this cold-blooded capital. You know, just like yeah, yeah, the yeah. money's there, we're gonna. So it was just blood money, as far as I'm concerned. Even though the place has been sold, you know, the cornerstone AOL is just drenched in blood. And I got, you know, I, uh, I, I don't, you know, I try not to 
click their site or give them any traffic or anything, which means the pro pro allegedly progressive Huffington Post is off my list. But, you know, I like uh, news organizations that pay the writers. It's a crazy old thing. I mean, although, you know, in, in this country, a lot of people, the theory is the problem with our economy is wages, you know. So, um, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, the guy, the guy, eventually at the end, he's got this what, what they call here from war guys, a thousand yard stare. He was broken. If you look carefully in the movie, you can see his eyes. That this guy, now he's he's experienced a little trauma, and finally he makes one last ditch effort and says to the says to the uh, senator, I want to stop you right there, senator, and to remind you that we at AOL have a strict three strikes in your own right. policy concerning child. And of course, I'm like, hey, nobody's a bigger baseball fan than me, but this is a one strike offense in any league, isn't it? And so he basically told them what I've been telling them, that the, I would see these people, turn them in, they would once in a while, they would take one of them offline, the person would be back the next day. Hmm. And and it's like three strikes for child pornography. And when they when he said that, it all kind of crystallized in the air. And then I just followed. I went in for the kill very quickly. They were done, and they changed their policy within a couple of days. Those rooms disappeared. Now, years passed. I never expected anybody to really thank me for it, particularly the kids. I thought one of the healthy things about it was there's a lot of kids who wouldn't get harmed if we did what we needed to do there who hmm. would have been harmed. And that was my reward. But then Bob makes the movie about me, and now I meet all these kids. I was on AOL back then, and we liked being on it so much. We didn't want to tell our parents what was going on in those chat rooms. There was, but there was all these creeps around. And then one day they just all went away. And I know it's because of what you did. Thank you, sir. You know, and it's like, wow, I never expected that. And the other thing is. I told people at the time, if you find child pornography, you're going to find people, a lot of people who are actively abusing kids. Nowadays, case after case is made because they first get caught uh, uh, trafficking in child pornography, and then they go into the computers and they find, oh, this is a local kid, and this is the guy in the picture. You know, so, <clears throat> so that was, you know, that's a battle that goes on as far as I'm concerned. I can't. People think I'm still monitoring that stuff carefully, and I feel like I did my part at an early point in the game when nobody knew about it, and I was made into Chicken Little for a while. But you know, now that it is really, uh, you know, sort of the cornerstone of how we track down these people who commit this horrible. You know, yeah, because at the time when you uh, reported it to the police. They, the police themselves didn't even have computers, so they, they obviously had so, so and most of them didn't. And also, uh, I knew this, I knew this uh, customs inspector who had been involved in fighting child pornography back when you had to go to Thailand or Sweden or something and smuggle it into the country to try and uh, this guy, yeah, this, and, and and this guy was a customs inspector, and. Uh, uh, he he told me, and then he hooked me up with a couple of cops who were trying to work on it. And every cop I talked to told me at the time that the other cops would say, and this is lovely, the other cops would say to him when they're working, he's still working on that faggot kid stuff? Well, Jesus. their tune changed when, when that first big bust that I was involved with called Operation Innocent Images, uh, and me working with the cops is just the last thing I ever talk yeah. about. You know, I mean, the odds against that are ridiculous. But 
um, when they when they made that busted glamour, it made it like, wow, you can get on, you know, you can get good press and be considered a hero for doing this. So suddenly the cops started enforcing the laws, which is what we needed. I wasn't there to tell them we needed new laws. I just said we needed the laws that were there enforced. And they started getting enforced. And, 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 and as I say, an awful lot of people since then, that's been the way they've figured out who some of these people are, is they get caught with uh, uh, child pornography. Right, yeah. And uh, it's all in, uh, anyway, the documentary is called Call Me Lucky on Netflix. And the title, of course, is is called call me lucky because you you've turned what is it was a horrible experience to have gone through at the age of four into something positive and i think you well i became a human rights activist rather than a perpetrator of human rights offenses i can't think of a more fortunate turn of events and i don't know had i been raped a few more times would that have driven me over some line i have now never know but i I know that I stayed on the, you know, I, you know, I, I, I didn't lose my conscience, I didn't lose my soul, and I stayed after it. And that's why I get upset when the church tries to threaten my soul. It's like, you know, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I feel, I don't like to talk about spirituality because I think if there is some sort of divine being out there, they're sort of beaming understanding to people in ways each individual knows and i think that's what makes the tower of babel a good metaphor because you know when i start telling you how things are revealed to me and insisting that you see things as they're revealed to me so i mean all that's revealed to me is to have a you know be able to get to sleep at night and live with yourself you know and that's that's been enough to to see me through and be kind to people and and hopefully even when you're angry or you're, you know, pointing out injustice and whatever, that really the driving force behind it is love and compassion and, and, and you know, an attempt to be as decent as you can without being judgmental in a lot of ways. And also, you know, I'm always scared of anybody who a lot of people go like, well, you tell the truth. They, they try to tie me up with the truth all the time. And it's like. You know, I never trust anyone who claims sole possession of the truth. I just, you know, I just want people to be of good conscience, and that's what I've tried to be myself. That's brilliant. Um, and you've just have you done a uh, special on Louis? Yeah, I just shot a special. Yeah. It should be out any day. I mean, you know, within at least a couple of weeks at worst. Uh, It'll be out on. Uh, is it Louis C.K.? Louis, Louis C.K. distributes it, and yeah. I mean, it's the best deal in show business and for a comic i mean we, there's not you know 17 tiers of corporate people raking money off the thing so we just sell it at first we saw it directly to the public after that sometime yeah. down the line i can turn and sell it to netflix or somebody but yeah. right now well, right uh, now where where would people see it when it does well, come out they can go to louisck.net and yeah. when it's released it will be there but i shot it in this town called lawrence kansas which is this very impressive town and progressive town in the epicenter of america but they've always remained very progressive because back when the civil war the american civil war was going on this town was wiped out by these confederates who didn't like them because they were abolitionists and they came up and they killed every man and every boy over say the age of seven in this town one one guy survived because his wife rolled him up in a rug but anyway Ever since then, this town has remained 
this steadfast progressive place, and it's where the University of Kansas is, Lawrence, Kansas. So uh, I I was out there with a film last year, and the response was remarkable, and I love the people in the town so much, so I went back to shoot it there. And it also served this other purpose, because they've kept me off TV in the United States a lot by saying, well, they love you on both coasts, but, you know, we're on in the whole country. Yeah. So now this is going to say live from Lawrence, Kansas. Laugh that off. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's pretty cool. And to have Louie, this, this is, you know, thank God I was nice to that kid part, too. <laughs> but, you know, to have, you know, Louie and... Bobcat and these people, I mean, it's really, it's really not, and, and also just sort of being at this stage of the game to find out, you know, because you don't think in terms of yourself and your work that, I mean, I, I just think in terms of keeping myself kind of honest on a daily basis, but other than that, I, but, you know, when people kind of all show up and they add up, you know, like, well, you were decent to me and what, well, I mean, it makes you feel, makes you feel good and, and, uh, and it's not something I'm vindicated because I didn't have this. I never felt put upon or whatever because I felt very fortunate. <clears throat> People say, well, you're so you're getting so successful now. And it's like, well, you know, since I was 18 years old, I woke up every day and did what I thought I was supposed to do. Mm. That to me is success. Yeah. I, haven't had, I haven't had to go sit in a cubicle and deal with some, you know, bully middle manager or anything. I've been very fortunate. So, you know, I felt like, if nothing had happened and this movie hadn't come along and the Louis special hadn't come along and and well, I might be talking to you about something else next year. But well, uh, that's an inspiration to me to just just go out and do what you want to do rather rather than chasing the uh, chat shows or whatever you should be. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, but uh, well, I uh, yeah. So I hope I can get over there. I'm, I'm playing. You're coming over, yeah. Leicester Square Theatre in London in September 29th, 30th, and October 1st. And I hope sometime soon I <clears throat> I can play Dublin, some of the other parts of Ireland, because yeah, uh, <clears throat> I feel called there. Oh, it would be amazing. I'm a country boy, and I feel very the land. Every time I see, you know, Ireland, there's something that sort of rings in my soul. Oh, you, you have to come over. I mean, yeah. there's got to be some place I mean uh, while you're over in London it's only a hop across the way so um. well yeah I know and we'll we'll you know we're working on it Um, but I will if I I will if I don't get there I'll die trying so uh, you know I, I just look I look forward to it I made so many friends that call me lucky got such a wonderful response from Ireland mm and uh i've made a lot of friends there that i've never met but they're my friends and and i communicate with them regularly and you know and you're one of them so uh i and you and i should work together both here and there um yeah absolutely i'm done look i'm gonna do everything i can to get you over here so well <laughs> thanks you and, and 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 you let me know what's going on and you know yeah. and i'll denounce you here and that will hurt that will help you with a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you do that do that yeah. uh well i'm sorry for getting you up so early barry and... uh, no, it's fine i you know I, it's it's fine i just it was a late night because i it took a while for the adrenaline of watching that idiotic trump speech uh so uh yeah. i was just up late but i'm i'm fine now and i you know i got stuff to do so thank wow. you 
Okay. I hope I got the cobwebs off soon enough to make a few uh, salient points. But oh, uh, fantastic! I love work, by the way, Joe. You're hilarious and oh, uh, important uh, comedic artist, and I, and more importantly than that, you know, a fine fellow. And uh, it's oh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And my love to you know my uh, my people over there in Ireland. Uh, you know, I'm a Crimmins, uh, Donovan, Nary, Ahern, and you know, I'm pretty. Uh, I got a lot of it in my blood. So, uh, and the place means a lot to me. Okay, well, I'm definitely gonna. You're gonna be over here, and we'll have a beer together. That's for sure. Uh, anyway, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's gonna we'll happen. Practice, we'll practice our drinking. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Everybody that contacts me, yeah, I'll buy you, I'll buy you a pint. I'll buy you. if I get all the pints that have been promised me, I, you know, I'll be, I'll have to be medevaced back to the United States. <laughs> but thanks, man, and uh, thanks to our buddy Bruce, uh, who's yeah, a, the hook, a wonderful the uh, there, yeah, lad who does a great Trump impression. Uh, it does. Yeah. Okay. We've got well, that on tape as well. So yeah. great, great. Okay. Cool. Okay. Thanks, thanks Barry. Man. So okay. Much, so long. Bye. There you go. I talk, what did I say? It's Barry Crimmins. He's a man. He is a man among men. And I mean that in the um, it, men that uh, includes women, if you know what I mean. Wow. Well, yeah, I don't know. You know the, the language just doesn't express itself properly in that way, does it? So um, that's Barry. And he's doing a gig in the Sugar Club on the... Uh, 27th of September I do believe but you certainly will see uh, that up uh, on Ticketmaster and you I will put it up on my website actually so uh, just in case I'm wrong but I'm pretty sure it's the 27th of September I will put that date up my I will look I will definitely find out what it is and I'll put that up on my website joerooneycomedian.com on, I'll be tweeting about it. If you follow me on Twitter, it's Joe Rooney One at Joe Rooney One, the number one, and uh, 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 also on my Facebook page. Or, 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 you know what I mean? You can, you can get me if you have any more. By the way, if you're first time, please do give me that star rating, you know, the five star rating on iTunes. You know, give me feedback, give me feedback, and and give me even suggestions if you want me to talk to someone. I've realised doing Skype that I can spread my wings a bit further now and talk to people. Uh, uh, people that uh, I don't have to be face to face with so any ideas uh, give me an email on mjoerooney at gmail.com and and feedback and all that kind of stuff because you know it's great uh, it, it, it's it's an enjoyable thing the podcast and but it's more enjoyable if if I it's kind of create some kind of community and feedback and that kind of malarkey so uh Yep, thanks for listening and uh well 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 thanks for you know subscribing and uh, go go and have a listen to some of the other ones that are back in the in the uh, archives as well. Yeah, thanks to uh, Andrew Mangan for producing Castaway Media for hosting and the music from Daniel Rooney and thank you Jack Cody for sponsoring. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.
I'm seeing something. It's smiling at me. But not a friendly smile. The worst smile I've ever seen in my life. Do you see it right now? Smile. Rated R. Only in theaters September 30th.